0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. A hundred years ago today, on the 1st of September 1923, the streets of Tokyo began to shudder. It was the first warning sign that something terrible was coming. A devastating earthquake that would level much of the city. But, as historian Dr Christopher Harding joined me to discuss, the Great Kanto Earthquake wasn't just a natural disaster. It also exposed deep lying social and political divides. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. We're going to be talking about an event that happened exactly 100 years ago, a devastating earthquake that rocked Tokyo. So what were the first signs that something was wrong on the 1st of September 1923?
1: So this was just before midday on that day. And from what we know, people's accounts after the event, they just started to feel the ground shaking, I think quite lightly at first. And anyone who's ever lived in Tokyo or an earthquake prone part of the world, that's not terribly uncommon. I lived in Tokyo for a while and you tend to see when it first happens, you get these little rumbles and things start to shake and people just pause to make sure that it goes away which it generally does. On this day, that didn't happen. So it went on five seconds and then 10 seconds. The rumbling then, this kind of side to side, got joined by the thing that nobody wants, which is this violent up and down movement. And then they know that something really serious is going on.
0: So I wonder if we could go big picture for a moment before we discuss the events in more detail. How pivotal a moment was this earthquake in the history of modern Japan?
1: So, for some historians, they look at this moment as a kind of reality check for Japan, especially Japan's conservatives. So, if we think this is 1923, we are by this point just over 50 years into Japan's rapid modernization, which began back in 1868. And for conservatives in Japan, the way they read that. 50-year history that's just gone by in 1923 is that it started off being really purposeful. Everyone was pulling together in the national interest. We can perhaps talk a bit more about what that project was later on. But then what they see or claim to see is that really perhaps from the 1910s onwards and particularly a new generation in japan people always blame young people for things they're starting to see a loss of purpose it's kind of everyone for themselves their job or enjoying a consumerist lifestyle bit of jazz bit of cinema some fashion and that people have kind of lost their way and tokyo is really emblematic of that especially in the minds of conservatives because tokyo is where all these different cosmopolitan cultures come together different influences from America, France, etc. The music comes in there. People are living the most, as it were, advanced lifestyles there. And so when the earthquake strikes Tokyo in 1923, some of these conservatives, are, they're tempted to say either it is literally a divine reprimand or it's at least a moment where the Japanese need to look at themselves again and ask them where their country is going and where their culture is going.
0: So I wonder if you could take us back to this cosmopolitan hub that was Tokyo. On the eve of the earthquake, if me and you had been on the streets of Tokyo, what might we have seen and and smelt? Who might we have met?
1: So we would probably have been in most likely quite narrow Streets Tokyo wasn't planned. It's massive growth that, that it's been through over the past few decades. When you get to 1923, it's four million people. We're all crammed in together. Overhead, we've got telegraph, telephone wires. We've got probably the smell of cooking from shop fronts, which would probably be quite nice. We might have trams rushing past, bicycles, rickshaws, a great press of people. So it would feel pretty lively. It would feel pretty fun, quite interesting. Very much, I think, geared towards that consumerist life. Style that I was just saying so you've got these clapperboard men running around advertising things some people were even using hot air balloons going overhead like kirin beer for example to try and really capture people's attention so busy and bustling and if you live there and you're used to it and you like it it's great if you're visiting from the countryside and you're used to a, a, a quite a different Japan it can feel like you're in sort of you know kind of a hellish pit of consumerism and and waste. So depending on whether you like a city or not, we could be having great fun or we could think Japan is finished.
0: (laughs) So from the impression you've given me there, this bustling city, people on top of each other, was it particularly vulnerable to a natural disaster when the earthquake struck?
1: Yeah, I think it really was. And this is what really angered people in the aftermath of 1923. Some reasons why it was vulnerable, I mentioned those narrow streets. A fire can easily hop over from building to building. Tokyo, at this point, doesn't have much in the way of fire breaks, you know, areas of land where they're deliberately wide, so a fire can't get across. By this point, a lot of big architecture, so department stores, municipal buildings, etc., are being built in concrete steel reinforced, but most ordinary structures, shops, homes, etc. are wood with a good deal of paper inside. Some of your listeners may have, have seen what they what are called these shoji partitions inside a house, this lovely wooden lattice with paper over it. So I mean, it's absolutely perfect and September is quite a hot time, absolutely perfect for burning. You also have gas being piped through some parts of the city and people are getting their fires going to cook lunch. So you really couldn't pick a worse time for something like this to happen.
0: So for anyone listening who's thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about an earthquake and now we're talking about a fire. I Mm. wonder if you could delve into a bit more detail about that day and how the disaster unfolded that then, as you say, led to a fire.
1: Yes, indeed, so you've got that side-to-side movement which people sense first, then you've got that kind of brutal up and down, the sense of the earth undulating. Way back, the Japanese used to imagine a giant catfish under the earth causing, you know, these earthquakes. And you can sort of see why when you have that feel of the earth undulating objects literally jumping off the floor. And that's really important because aside from tiles falling off roofs, buildings falling over, etc., if the floor itself is jumping and people are cooking on charcoal fires, then it becomes very easy for those fires to be upset, to turn over, to set light to the wood and the paper around them. In some cases, we know that gas mains were also ruptured, and so that can help these fires to spread. Also, these very narrow streets that you have in Tokyo at this point, it's quite easy for wind to be channeled down them and if that wind is carrying sparks then again the spread of the fire is incredibly rapid and I think it says something about people's awareness in Tokyo at this point of that sort of risk that as soon as they began to smell fire on the air a lot of people seem to have gone back into their homes packed up what they could carry and they were off out of the city because they knew Maybe the earthquake had gone. There'd probably be earthquakes. But the fire that was coming was an enormous risk to life. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
0: So how long did this state of emergency last? And as you say, how do people respond to it in general?
1: So we have a few records, government records, writers and others who remember that day. The first few hours afterwards are this chaos of people trying to leave their homes, trying to get out of town. One person who I mentioned in the piece for the magazine had literally a chest of drawers on his back. So if you think that people are trying to get out that way with the maximum amount of stuff, they may be using rickshaws as well, very, very soon it's jam-packed. It puts me in mind of, you know, a sort of disaster movie from much later on where people have got cars and it's just this massive road jam-packed and no one's moving because everyone's trying to do the same thing. I think Tokyo was much like that. That first day on the 1st of September 23, everyone's trying to get out across these narrow bridges, through these narrow streets. It's chock-a-block, it's chaos, the sparks are coming down, more fire is starting. It's extraordinarily smoky, very, very hot for people there, to the point where some people are jumping off bridges into the river to try to cool down. The fires go on for hours and hours and hours into the next day. We think that roughly half of Tokyo is gone within just a few days. Half of Tokyo therefore is homeless, they're all trying to go somewhere. And I suppose the disaster like this, it unfolds in stages. You've got the earthquake, then you've got the fires, then you've got people trying to leave during the fires, then you have people who remain either trapped, they're not able to eat, water is in very, very short supply at this point, obviously nothing's able uh, to come in. And we know that rumours then start to spread about what might happen next. Will there be another earthquake? Maybe there's a tsunami coming in from the sea. Tokyo, of course, is on the coast. Even some people thinking that Mount Fuji is about to erupt. So you have this rolling disaster across many, many days that just has these different phases and just seems to get worse as time goes on.
0: Mm, So it's a pretty dire, terrifying situation. And as you say, this disaster rolls on. And as it does, we get a new layer, which is almost like a human disaster in which people are turning on each other and on themselves. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the big part of this story is that at this point, Tokyo is home to thousands of Korean people. We talk about Japan as an empire, the Japanese empire at this point. And that's not just because it has an emperor who is located in Tokyo, but it also has a colonial empire that it's building up. In 1910, korea became part of that empire amidst we think more than 10000 deaths on the on the korean peninsula so people in tokyo a they have grown up being taught that people in korea people in china are backward in terms of relative level of civilization. Japan sees itself as being the great modernizer and modernized nation in Asia. Also, there's a heavy racial tinge to that. These people are lesser in all sorts of ways. And the expectation is that Koreans who live in Japan will feel not terribly good about their colonization and might take the opportunity of chaos like an earthquake and a fire to resist, to rise up against the authorities. And so a rumour starts to go around that Koreans in Tokyo are setting fires of their own. So they're making these fires much, much worse, that they are maybe even plotting bombs, that they're doing all sorts of things to try and at last get some kind of payback for what the Japanese authorities have been doing on the Korean peninsula. And it's really difficult now to know how exactly this happened. People think that it was some combination of thugs and opportunists, people who were seeking to raid Koreans' homes and get something, others who were, yeah, simply awful people looking for a fight. The result, we think, was about, and it's an incredible number, about 6,000 Korean people were killed over the course of these few days after the earthquake. And they were killed, you know, in the most brutal of ways, thrown down wells. They were sort of chopped up with whatever blades people had in their houses, they were physically beaten up. And one extra element which seems to have made it worse is that parts of the Japanese armed forces who were sent in quite quickly under martial law after the earthquake, and parts of the Tokyo police force, some of the men who serve in those two institutions have not long come back from service on the Korean peninsula. And to put it mildly, they don't feel particularly warmly about Koreans. So far from trying to quell this violence, which is hard anyway, you know, in a period of such chaos, they seem actually to be getting involved, egging people on, helping them out and making it possible for this, you know, extraordinary slaughter to go ahead.
0: So it's interesting, isn't it, that a a natural disaster can really tap into social and political fears.
1: Absolutely it's terrifying. I think we we tasted that didn't we in a, in well in my case at least a fairly mild way back in covid. I remember that video of the nurse sitting in her car and saying why is everyone taking whatever they can get in the supermarket i need to eat. It's that kind of thing on just an enormous scale people already turning on each other and these political grievances then arising at the same time. And that's one of the things I think that looms quite large. We'll probably get onto it in a moment in the aftermath of the earthquake. People are asking, why did we do that? It's not as though the Japanese as a whole would be willing to treat Korean people in that way. For a lot of people afterwards, that's a really big cause of soul searching that, as you say, a natural disaster seems to have revealed something really dark and unpleasant, at least in a portion of the population.
0: You mentioned the introduction of soldiers and the police. Can you tell us a bit more about the state response?
1: So the army sent in fairly quickly to try and clear roads. There's a big effort to try to repair the docks so that they can get new supplies coming in via ships. But all this takes a great deal of time. So there are stories of people on the verge of starvation watching these huge merchant vessels and government vessels just off the coast, waiting for the docks to be repaired so that this food can be brought in. Martial law lasts for weeks, which suggests to me, at least, that it does take a very long time for these things to be cleared up. If you're lucky as a, a Tokyoite, your family perhaps lives somewhere that's more or less walkable from Tokyo, or you can get out of Tokyo, find train somehow, if there's one still running, and go back to your hometown or home village. For lots of other people, they don't have that option, so you find people congregating in wide open areas. I think a classic one is the, the moat, the outer moat that runs around the the Imperial Palace in the middle of Tokyo. People are hanging out there because it's open ground in front of it. They can wash in the moat, which, you know, in ordinary times is a profoundly disrespectful thing to do, but they have no option, of course. So to, to actually try and respond to all that, to clear the way, to get all the debris out, it's weeks and weeks and weeks that it takes the authorities to do it.
0: So when the dust had settled, Can you give us a sense of the devastation in Tokyo? You mentioned, obviously, so many people left homeless, but also in terms of the damage to cultural heritage and, and old ancient buildings.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Tokyo has been through this twice. The reason a lot of people now go to Tokyo and can be a little bit disappointed by the architecture is that not once but twice, 1923 and then, of course, 1945, twice so much of Tokyo has gone because of catastrophic fires and to give a sense of how bad it was when the authorities came together the prime minister and his cabinet came together to try to plan what happened next they were almost working with a blank slate in Tokyo they could begin to replan this city as a modern city because so much of it had been wiped away and people can have a look online you see the photos I mean there's just nothing there's just burned out bent steel debris. So much is just completely gone. You can virtually reimagine the city, which is what, of course, they tried to do.
0: And on top of the the architectural devastation, do we have any sense of the human cost? Do we know how many people were killed?
1: At a conservative estimate, about 100,000 people lost their lives. The upper end is probably close to about 120,000 people, which is a huge proportion of a population of Tokyo around this time that was in the region of four million. And we should probably say, of course, you have been naturally talking mostly about Tokyo, but Yokohama nearby was also profoundly affected by this, more or less completely destroyed. So there's enormous loss of life there as well. I think it's difficult to say what was responsible for that, but I think people would probably agree that for the most part, it was the fire that did for the vast proportion of that very large number.
0: And so when people in Tokyo did look to start rebuilding their city, Where were they taking inspiration from? What can the rebuilding of Tokyo tell us about the Japanese mindset at the time?
1: Interesting. I think there was a realisation that the city had just grown from what used to be a fishing village and then a castle town and then finally a capital city after 1869 without really very much planning at all. So you wouldn't want to be uh, post person in Tokyo because you'd have no idea where to deliver things there was no grid system that you know you might find in a large American city for example that told you exactly what was what and you have these numbered streets Tokyo had nothing like that it was very very confusing place for some people actually quite a charming place all sorts of songs were written about Tokyo not long before the earthquake extolling this kind of chaotic but really invigorating life that people were living. So to give you a sense of some of the things the government hoped to do, the initial plan, which would have cost about four billion yen, was if you could make it work, given that people still have property rights, even if the actual physical buildings have more or less all gone, you could really radically redo it so that you had a grid system, you had these enormous parks, you had these great institutions that you could build. I think one element of Tokyo in this uh, earlier period was that if you were poor in Tokyo, there wasn't a great deal that the government could do for you. And lots of people came to Tokyo hoping for jobs, either couldn't get them or it was very, very kind of insecure work. And so after the earthquake, there are minor measures to try to help people out. Things like trying to set up pawn shops across the city so that if you are really desperate, rather than borrow from moneylenders and get into even worse trouble, you'll be able to pawn off some of your stuff and perhaps survive for a bit longer. There are municipal canteens and bathing facilities. They managed to build some of that. So I think that tells you something. I think there's also a sense that, especially as Tokyo rebuilds in the late 1920s, Japan still thinks about itself as the leading nation in Asia. And, I think we feel the same way probably about London or about Paris. Your capital city says a lot about you. So they wanted to rebuild Tokyo in a way that really showed that Japan was a a serious power in East Asia. And so they wanted to put all that money in to make that happen, to have this fantastic, bold architecture. In the end, property rights quibbles over the money. All these sorts of things get in the way. I mean, One really obvious example, and I think it tracks back to something we were saying earlier on about how... Tokyo is considered to be at the forefront of modern cosmopolitan living in Japan. If you're a city slick and you love it, great. If you're in the countryside, you think actually that is the best example available of what's going wrong with Japan because it's everyone for themselves. Family doesn't really make sense in Tokyo because people live by themselves or you've got women doing secretarial jobs, being financially independent, again, for people A lot of people, and I'm generalising massively, but a lot of more conservative types in the countryside, that really isn't what Japan is all about. The last thing that people in the countryside want to do, don't forget Japan's a democracy at this point, is pump lots and lots of their money into remaking the same old awful kind of cesspit of moral values that they think Tokyo used to be so in the end Tokyo doesn't get even a fraction of the money that it really needed and so if you go to Tokyo now it's it's still quite a confusing place actually that 1923 moment didn't really happen I think in terms of a, a radical rethink.
0: So obviously there, there were these grand visions as you say they didn't quite come to fruition mm. but what kind of city did emerge from the flames? So
1: you get Some of those municipal facilities I was talking about earlier on, you get a few parks. People are quite conscious that Paris and London have better green space than Japan does. And at this point in time, in Japan as elsewhere, there is decent scientific evidence that the Japanese are terribly conscious of using science, you know, for proper modern living, that fresh air is important for personal hygiene. It's then important to have strong Japanese bodies, which in the way of thinking at the time is the basis of a strong nation. Your human beings, not just your armed forces, but your mothers, your children are the the real raw material of your nation. And it's quite this is quite a racialized feel to this, as we were saying earlier on. So some of this green space is important. They have baseball. The Japanese are big fans of baseball at this point and still now. So baseball, diamonds, etc. And you have a lot of rebuilding that goes on. I think the really crucial thing that doesn't happen is the widespread use of fireproof materials for rebuilding, which people at the time were saying, you know, we really need to do this. We've just seen this evidence of what happens if we don't do it. But those sorts of materials cost money. And so what do you get? Lots of wood and lots of paper and American strategists, military strategists, thousands of miles away thinking, that's interesting. Tokyo, if it comes to it, will burn rather nicely.
0: I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that as you alluded to earlier of course the american firebombing of tokyo in the second world war were there any parallels there that you would draw out with the events of 1923 or was it more just that the, the lessons weren't learnt from that
1: I think the big parallel is that tokyo was still a city that would burn so easily you see again around 100,000 people lose their lives. You see, I think in this case in 1945, it was roughly a quarter of the city destroyed. So not quite as devastating as 1923, but that's a a weird thing to say when you've got 100,000 people losing their lives. And Interestingly, I think it was in the early 1960s or so, the Japanese emperor, Emperor Hirohito, made this comment, you know, enough time has gone by by this point since 1945, what, 15, 20 years later. He actually says, early, mid-60s, that had they rebuilt Tokyo properly, done the more expensive job in 1923, those fires that killed so many tens of thousands of people in 1945 just wouldn't have been possible. And you think between 1923 and 1945, you'd have had more than 20 years where it could have been mandatory to build in your cities in that sensible way, bearing in mind the risk of fire. These fire bombings of the Japanese cities in the spring and summer of 45, they often get overshadowed, of course, by Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But that use of fire bombs and the fires as they spread was far more devastating to Japan, in terms of loss of life, I would say probably almost in terms of morale as well. Because after Hiroshima and Nagasaki for a while, people just simply didn't know what had gone on. So if the emperor himself is saying that in the early 60s, we could have done this differently, then I think it's reasonable as historians that we, we take that quite seriously.
0: And so in the decades since, and even perhaps up till today, hmm. how do people in Tokyo and in Japan more widely reflect on, on the earthquake of 1923?
1: It's very well known. I think one of the things that influences people's memory of it is what came afterwards. So the rest of the 1920s in Japan, there was already a sense that the armed forces were unhappy with the way that civilian politicians and diplomats were behaving in terms of making Japan's case to the outside world, that they were selling Japan short in various international negotiations. You get a feel increasingly, especially amongst more sort of conservative thinkers in Japan, that if you want to look for real Japanese values, you could do no better than look to the military, because it's all about cooperation, pulling together, self-sacrifice, etc. Some of Japan's military leaders really then play on that into the early 1930s to do these lecture tours around Japan to really extol the virtues of the military and it becomes a little bit easier than it might have been otherwise I think than for the Japanese to at least acquiesce in what becomes a government that's ever more dominated by top military figures across the 1930s. Given that that's the direction of travel and then Japan is in this awful war, first with China, uh, which it starts, we should be clear, and then with United States and Great Britain, a lot of people look back to 1923 as the erasure of a happier modern life before. So people could watch, for example, Hayao Miyazaki's film, The Wind Rises, There's a sequence there which is all about the 1923 earthquake, both the terror of it and the sense of a good and innocent set of lives really both being obliterated by the earthquake itself and then really never coming back as they might have done. So for some people, it's a real point of division. And the Japan that emerges in the 20 years afterwards, after 1923, is steadily darker and darker. So for anyone who's inclined emotionally as well as historically to look for a breakpoint... I think the 1923 earthquake really becomes a big one.
0: That was Christopher Harding speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Chris's books include Japan Story in Search of a Nation and The Japanese, A History in 20 Lives. He wrote a feature on the Tokyo earthquake for the September issue of BBC History magazine. And Chris also appeared as one of the expert guests on a series I made for History Extra all about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour. You can find that by searching for Pearl Harbor in your podcast feeds or on historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.